As I mentioned, we're starting a new series in the book of Exodus today. And just by way of introduction, why? Why are we, why Exodus? And one reason is that it's just not a part of the Bible, maybe, that we're very familiar with, or maybe you have kind of a general idea of what happens in this book. And yet, it's not something that we really intimately know. And so, as people who want to be Bible people, it's good for us to know the story of Exodus, to hear God speak through an unfamiliar part of Scripture. But there's actually more to it than that. Because Exodus is the story of a people who are enslaved. Of a people who are who were on the verge of death. And it's the story of a God who loves those people and steps in to rescue those people and make them his own. In other words, it's the gospel. It's the good news. The good news that we find in the New Testament in books about Jesus and about his people. It's there in the Old Testament too. In this book called Exodus. And so, we're going through Exodus so that we can hear again the good news. The Christian story told in the Old Testament. So we're going to read this morning. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1. There's going to be some names you don't recognize and that's okay. And it's a long passage. But bear with me. And let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, literally very, very strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, look. The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Literally, they loathed them. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, 
When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you will kill him. But if it is a daughter, she will live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you will throw into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a good child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister, the baby's sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the the girl went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her uh, and Pharaoh's excuse me, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to understand your word? Help us to enter into this story that maybe we're not very familiar with and to come away with a greater vision of who you are. And we pray it in Jesus name. Amen. So as we kind of enter into the story of Exodus, it would be helpful for us to know the story behind the story. To really to really know Exodus and to really appreciate Exodus, you need to at least be a little bit familiar with Genesis. Right? We have all of these names here in the book, uh, here in the first few verses of chapter 1. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Joseph. Who are all of these people? And to answer that question... You need to know that we get their story in Genesis. That these people, these 12 sons, belong to a man named Jacob. Jacob's other name was Israel. Probably a name that you're familiar with. There's still a nation by that name. And God dealt especially well 
with Israel. But it wasn't necessarily because of Israel. God also dealt well with Israel's father, Isaac. But really it wasn't because of Isaac. God dealt especially well with Isaac's father, Abraham. See, the story of Exodus really begins with this man named Abraham. And just to make the whole story of Genesis very quick for you, here's, here's the gist. I'm going to boil it down. This is really oversimplistic. But Genesis 1 through 11, God made a good world and man and his sin really messed it up. That all the brokenness you see in the world is not God's fault, but our fault. And then in Genesis 12, God calls out a man named Abraham, a man who didn't know him, who didn't worship him. And God makes a promise to Abraham. He tells Abraham that he will be with him. He tells him he'll make him a great nation, which was really important in the ancient world. If you wanted notoriety, you wanted to be a nation. And so God promises that to Abraham. God promises to give Abraham a place. He won't have to wander around. He'll have this land called Canaan. By the way, Abraham never got to possess that land. More than that, God promises to be with Abraham, to walk with him. And through Abraham to bless the world. And that's really the key. That Abraham was to be a blessing to the world because of his relationship with God. God reaffirmed that promise to Abraham's son Isaac. And then to Isaac's son Jacob. And through Jacob to these twelve sons. And that brings us to Exodus. And to these twelve men and their families who are far away from Canaan in a country called Egypt. And what we see... Uh, What we're about to see is how God takes that small group of families, 70 people plus, and makes them into a nation. And like all good stories, it begins with conflict. It begins when all hope seems lost. That God is going to do something miraculous. But before he does, we get this really terrible Awful story about slavery and genocide. And you might even be surprised that such a thing is in the Bible. So why does God put this here? Why is this in Exodus? Why does Exodus start this way? And at least one answer I would give to that is that even when all seems dark, God is at work. Even when all seems difficult and beyond impossible, when God seems absent... He is still keeping his promises, even in the background. That's what's happening in the chapters we just read. And so we're going to look at this under two headings. One, we're going to look at what it means to live by faith in the darkness when God seems absent. And what it means to live by faith in the promises. What it means to hold on to God's word, even when... You don't seem to be hearing anything from God at all. Living by faith in the darkness. Uh, You've probably heard the saying before, the night is darkest just before the dawn. But I imagine that such poetic turns of phrase aren't really all that helpful when you're in the midst of the darkness. I don't imagine that for these people living at this time that that would have been a very comforting thought. By the time we get to this story, Israel has been in Egypt 400 years. 
See, when, when we read the Bible, it's very easy for us to kind of move from Genesis to Exodus and just keep on going. But there are these big stretches of time that there is no real activity. And it's during these 400 years that Israel is growing in Egypt. Let's just trace the increasing hostility that these people are facing. These people, God's people, are, are growing. They're multiplying. The text says they, are, they become very, very strong and they're spreading through the land. And then a pharaoh, a king, comes to power who doesn't know Joseph. See, Joseph had taken care of his people. He'd made sure they had everything they need. Joseph enjoyed special favor with Pharaoh. But a few generations down the line, and Pharaoh, the, the new Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't appreciate Joseph. All he sees are these immigrants who are growing numerous, and he's worried. He's, he feels threatened by their presence. He's worried they're going to take over the country. And so... What he decides to do, he hatches this plan to scheme with his people. He says, let's deal shrewdly. Let's deal skillfully with the people of Israel. Let's submit them to hard labor. You see, Pharaoh wants to stop them growing by breaking their spirit. And so he subjects them to hard labor. He makes them slaves. He sets cruel taskmasters over them. That's how Pharaoh responds but it doesn't work. Rather than, rather than stop growing, the people grow more. And so Pharaoh tries a different policy. Instead of slavery, instead of oppression, instead of cruelty, he tries infanticide. He goes to the Hebrew midwives, these two ladies. Oddly enough, Pharaoh goes nameless in this story. But these two humble midwives, they get names. Right, they're remembered and Pharaoh is not. Pharaoh goes to these midwives and he says, when you go to a Hebrew home and the woman is giving birth, if it's a boy, I want you to kill him. Because if we can't work them to death as adults, we'll just kill them as they come out of the womb. So we'll rob them of their strength. We'll kill all the boys and leave all the girls, and then we can intermarry with them, and we'll wipe out the Hebrew race. And so, that doesn't work either. The Hebrew midwives take a different tact, and Israel continues to grow. And so Pharaoh then chooses a different policy. He moves from a political strategy of getting these people to work it this way, and just moves to popular opinion. If he can't get the Hebrew midwife to do it, he'll just have his own people do it. He tells his own people, when you find a Hebrew boy that's just been born, chuck him in the river. We're going to wipe him out. So, it's easy to read this. It's easy to kind of gloss over this and, and miss the, the punch in the gut that it's meant to be. It's easy to read this and forget that these are real people. Real people sweating and bleeding under the Hebrew whip, under the Egyptian whip. Real baby boys drowning in the Nile River. I don't, so I don't want you to miss 
the reality of the darkness that's at work here. This is a, this is a pretty awful moment in history. And the truth of the matter is, there's another power at work. There's more to the Genesis backstory that you need to know. In Genesis 3.15, or in Genesis 3, there's a creature called the serpent. And he leads Adam and Eve astray. It's really his temptation that leads humanity into sin. And we don't realize until later in the story that this serpent is really just a representation for God's greater enemy, Satan, the devil, as we call him now. And he actively works against God's promises. He actively tries to wipe out God's people. God says as much to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He says, your children will be actively at war with the children of the woman. You will be at enmity, strife. You will hate the seed of the woman. And that's what's going on here at the beginning of Exodus. God's people at war with the people of the serpent, with the world. And it looks like it's a losing battle. So what do we do with that? How do we live in the face of that kind of darkness and hostility? The first thing we need to know is that opposition is a normal part of life. It's a normal part of life for God's people, even in the New Testament. Jesus says it. Paul says it. Peter says it. John says it. And they all live it. Contrary to maybe the popular opinion that to live in fellowship with God means to experience material blessing or favor on some uh, circumstantial level. The Bible tells us right the opposite. That those, those who are identified with God will actually be hated by the world and oppressed by the world that does not understand them, and even will want to be, even will be wiped out, right? That there's a power actively at work oppressing God's people and working against God's promise. And so identification with God means disapproval from the world and often outright hostility from the world, which leads a sane person to ask, why? Why is that the case? Where God, where are you? What are you doing? Where in the world is God? Surely in 400 years, you can imagine how how many generations, how many people, how many nameless, faceless people lived and died, had birthdays and anniversaries, worked jobs, and we don't know anything about them. And they ask the question, God, where are you? What are you doing? What happening? And that's a sane question to ask when you suffer. Is it not? Why? Particularly if you didn't do anything to deserve it. I mean, yes, oftentimes we suffer as consequences for our actions. Uh, We sin and we face the consequences. But that's not the case for Israel here. And sometimes it's not the case for us either. We don't do anything wrong. And we suffer. Why? And maybe even to add insult to injury, the people are in Egypt because God sent them there. They're right, contrary to what it may look like, 
They're right where they're supposed to be. Genesis 46. God is talking to Jacob. Genesis 46, verse 2. See, Joseph was already in Egypt. Jacob's son, Joseph, was already in Egypt. And he sends a message to his father. He says, there's a famine in the known world at this point. Egypt has food. Everywhere else doesn't. Joseph sends a message, message to his father, Jacob, and says, come on down to Egypt. Come live here. There's plenty of food here. If you stay in Cana, you're going to die. But this is God's promise to Jacob that he would have this land. And so he needs a word from God. He needs to hear God tell him, yes, it's okay to go to Egypt. And so God does. In verse 2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. Genesis 46, verse 2. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. So so they're in Egypt because God said, that's where you're going to go, and that's where I'm going to prosper you. Lord, they're killing our children. This doesn't look like prospering to me. What are you doing? Genesis 15. God had been pretty specific with Abraham as well. Genesis 15:13. The Lord said to Abram, "Know for certain that your offspring, your seed, will be sojourners, strangers, immigrants in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there." And they will be afflicted for 400 years. It's saying to ask why. And yet it's also uncomfortable to realize that God does not always answer the why question. Because when I'm in the midst of suffering, when I'm in the midst of pain, I want an explanation that fits my logic. And one of the things about having a God who is bigger than me, whom I cannot control, is that he does not always answer according to my logic. He does not always answer why. And so part of living in the darkness, living under threat, is realizing that sometimes there's not a logical explanation. That as long as I worship the God of my own imagination, a God that I've created, my own fashioning, I can control him however I see fit. But when I worship a God who is bigger than me, I cannot control him. In fact, I'm uncomfortably out of control. And he does not answer to me. And that is where Israel finds itself. That can be frustrating. But it's also important that even though God does not always answer the why, He is not absent. Look back at Genesis 46. God tells Jacob, Don't be afraid to go to Egypt, because I'm going to make you, there I will make you into a great nation. And then He goes a step further. 
I myself will go down with you to Egypt. God, they're killing our babies. They're working us literally to death. Where are you? I'm right here. I will go down with you to Egypt. And I will bring you back out again. God is not absent in the darkness. He may be silent. They may not be hearing the word that they want to hear. But he is not absent. God may be silent, but he is not absent. That sounds nice. Seems like it might go well on a, on a Hallmark card or a graphic of some sort. You could Instagram that. God may be silent, but he's not absent. It sounds good, but I mean, does it really, does it really touch the nerve? How do I know God isn't absent? How do I move beyond the tweet into really absorbing that? What kind of proof do we have in this narrative that that God is at work? Well, let's look at a few things. Let's look at what it means to live by faith in the promises. One, the first thing I would point out is that the people are growing. So God is fulfilling his promise to make Abraham a great nation, to make his descendants outnumber the stars. He's doing exactly what he told Jacob he would do. When you go to Egypt, there I will make you a great nation. The people are multiplying. They are being fruitful. They are growing very strong. God is keeping his promises. And in great irony, whatever steps Pharaoh takes to undo that, God frustrates him. Right? It's their size, it's their strength that makes Pharaoh nervous. And so he says, all right, I'm going to break their wills. I'm going to break their spirit. We're going to, we're going to work them to death so that they won't multiply. What do they do? Multiply. Right? It's the beauty of the irony, of the divine irony in these passages. That whatever, whatever the serpent, whatever the enemy wants to do, God There may be a dark, supernatural, evil power at work behind Pharaoh. But behind that evil power, there is a greater power whose promises, and, whose promises will not be frustrated. Whose purposes cannot be undone. And so, Pharaoh decides that instead to have these midwives kill the people. And it's at that point that we learn that living by faith means living with the right kind of fear. Look at what Shifra and Pua do. These probably aren't the only midwives. They were probably in charge of a guild of midwives. But Pharaoh says, I want you to kill all the boys. How does it describe them? Verse 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. So, living by faith in God's promises means at some point you'll have to live by the right kind of fear. You'll have to choose who you're going to fear. The midwives chose to fear God and not Pharaoh. And as a result, God prospers them. He protects them. I mean, it's, it's almost, it really is humorous 
When they're called on the carpet, when they're called to give an account, it's interesting. God doesn't keep them from being examined by Pharaoh. They have to give, they have to give account for their actions. They're put on the spot. And what do they say? Hebrew women are just better at giving birth than Egyptian women. They beat us to the punch every time. Now, um, some would say, oh, they're, they're telling a lie, right? So they're, they chose the lesser of two evils. Rather than, rather than commit murder, they chose to lie instead, and God blessed their lying. I don't know necessarily the case. Maybe Hebrew women were stronger. Remember, God is causing them to prosper and make them strong. And so it's possible that God didn't put them in the position to lie. It's also possible to answer that by saying Pharaoh had rejected any right to be told the truth because he was commanding something that was absolutely evil. And we really don't know the answer to that. What we do know is that out of their courage, out of their fear of the Lord, their reverent worship and awe of God, God blessed them. He gave them their own families, and the people of God continued to grow. And so, living by faith means living by fear, the right kind of fear. Who will you fear? Living by faith also means living with patient trust. Look at, uh, look at how it intensifies. Pharaoh says, okay, so the midwives won't do it. We'll do it ourselves. Exterminate every boy you see. And then, almost to give us a test case, the narrator shows us this Levite couple. As soon as the edict leaves Pharaoh's mouth, we have a Levite couple. And what do they have? A son. And he's a good son. He's a a healthy boy. He's going to survive. So what is... This boy's mother do, she hides him for as long as she can. Will this boy end up in the river? Yes, he will. But not the way Pharaoh wants him to. This boy's mother follows the letter of the law, but not the spirit. She places him in the river, in a basket, so that he won't sink. And down the river he goes. And how ironic, from the same house, the same royal family that had declared that all Hebrew boys should die, in that house, this Hebrew boy will live. The daughter of the Pharaoh who wanted to kill every Hebrew child preserves the life of this one. And almost, again, to add insult to injury, not only is this boy protected, not only is he raised in the royal family that otherwise would have sought to kill him, his mom even gets paid to nurse him. I mean, is it not beautiful how God works in the darkness? And so this may not be the most outright this may not be, this is, this is not God in his most verbal, but he is not, certainly not absent. He is working in the background, continuing to provide for his people. So far from being absent in times of trouble, he is present. 
And he spurs his people on to live lives of faithfulness. And so the question that we have to answer here, right at the very beginning of the story, it's a, it's a question that Exodus will answer again and again and again. Will you trust the one who is greater? Or, who will you worship? Who will you fear? Who will you serve? Will it be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The God who keeps His promises? In fact, the God who is powerful enough to keep His promises even when all hope seems lost? God is about to move in a very dramatic way. That's part of the beauty of Exodus. As we see God sweep in, or as, uh, as the psalmist would say, with his holy arm bared. We're going we're gonna to see God's muscle. He's going he's gonna to put the Egyptians down. But that's not the first time we see God working. Even before God flexes his muscle, he's working in the background. He's paving the way. He's raising up a deliverer. This little boy, Moses, drawn out of the water. This little boy, Moses, is going to draw God's people through the wilderness. He's going to draw them out of the waters of the Red Sea, dry and safe. God is going to save his people. God is at work. What about us? How does that speak to you? What proof do you have that God is at work even in the darkness? You know, one of the things, I realize this is fairly unpopular to say, one of the things about our current cultural moment, if I, if I had preached this sermon at the, at the end or midway point of last year and we would have talked about a hostile culture, I imagine most of you in the room would have been like, yes, the world is in opposition. Yes, the world is hostile. One of my concerns now that we have uh, the president that we have is that we kind of go back to sleep and we say, oh, well, good. Now we've got our guy in the White House and, and the world's not as hostile as it used to be. Friend, that is not the case. The seed of the serpent is alive and well, and he is warring as hard as he can against the seed of the woman. The world is still a dark place. You know that. There have been more Christians martyred in the 20th century than in the previous 19. Wait, we're in the 21st century. So, the numbers just keep going up. So what proof do we have that God is at work even in the face of hostility, even in the face of darkness? Well, there was another baby boy. And he came along after 400 years of silence. God had not spoken in 400 years. The people, uh, the people of God were slaves. They were under Roman oppression. They were looking for a word. They were looking for a savior. Someone who could make things right. And then in the middle of a silent night, this baby was born. And almost as soon as he was born, he was under threat from a king who sought to put him to death. 
A king who would, in fact, kill every boy two years and younger in the village where this boy was born. But God rescued that boy. And that boy became a man. And that man would lead his people through the wilderness, through the waters, to the mountain. And unlike Moses, he would spread his arms out on that mountain and he would give away his life. He would die to save his people. That boy, that man, is Jesus. The cross is proof that darkness does not have the last word. The cross is proof that God keeps his promises. Yes, the world will be blessed through Abraham. It will be blessed through Abraham's greater son, through the one like Moses who knew the law and taught the law and lived the law. The world will be blessed through Jesus. Do you believe him? Do you know this God? Let's pray.